Well, good morning, Rack Church. Again, I want to say I'm so grateful for your ministry here. We are seeing the fruit of what you're doing here in our ministry in focus. And so churches like you are really the reason why we are able to do what we do on the university campuses. So again, just want to say thank you and um, what a privilege it is to preach to you from God's word this morning. I want to ask you, are you where you thought you would be 10 years ago? Or what about 20 years ago? I certainly am not. I'm sure that all of you would agree when I say that even our best laid plans, they rarely succeed. It's rare for our 10 or 20 year plans to happen exactly as we planned it no matter how foolproof we think they are. When the Titanic set sail in 1912, it was dubbed unsinkable because nobody could conceive that such a carefully built ship on a carefully planned route would be destroyed. But of course, we know what happened. No one could have foreseen the iceberg that destroyed the ship And in the same way, we often feel like an unseen hand guides our paths, stopping us in our tracks, putting us on paths that we would not have chosen to go on. You know, when we make plans, we plan for ourselves, we plan for our families, and that just goes to show that our vision is so small. But God cares for the whole world. And his vision is great. And it is his hand that guides all of us to accomplish what is best for the whole world. In today's text, we are going to see the futility of standing against God's plans. And the great power and wisdom by which he accomplishes his plans. Now, if you are taking down notes for the sermon... I want to tell you what we're going to see today in our text. I want us to see that Jesus is unstoppable. And because Jesus is unstoppable, this is the first point we'll see, is that God's plans for his people will always prevail. And secondly, God's plans for the world will always prevail. Because Jesus is unstoppable, God's plans for his people will always prevail, and God's plans for the world will always prevail. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, verse 30. And we are going to go all the way till the end of chapter 23. But as you're turning there, let me just tell you what is going on so far in this section of the book of Acts. It seems like we are jumping right into the middle of a story. So let me give you some context. Now, at this point, Paul the Apostle has been arrested in Jerusalem. He is in Jerusalem. He's in chains. Paul has just given a defense of the gospel. And because of this, the Jews who were listening to him became very angry with him and demanded that he be killed. Now, an important character in the story that we are going to read today is a Roman tribune. He's a governor, and he orders that Paul be flogged in order to know the real reason why the Jews were angry with Paul. 
But upon learning that Paul was a Roman citizen, he becomes afraid because it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. It was a great offense. So let's read Acts chapter 22, verse 30, um, and we will go till Acts chapter 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he bound him and commanded the chief priests, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he has said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you so you must testify also in Rome. So, as we come to the section that we are reading this morning, that we have just read, the tribune still does not know the reason why the Jews wanted to kill Paul. So, he calls a council of the top Jewish leaders and sets Paul before them to know what were their charges against him. Now, this was the highest Jewish religious court. This was called the Sanhedrin. We are told the high priest was present. His name is Ananias. There would have been 70 elders present in this council. And Paul begins his statement in verse 1, saying that he has lived his life in good conscience before God. Now, obviously, Paul does not mean that he is sinless. It's clear from other parts of his writing that he knows how sinful he is. But Paul is claiming that he is faultless with regard to the Jewish laws. In other words, he's innocent and they are falsely accusing him. Upon hearing this, Ananias the high priest becomes very angry 
And it's almost like he doesn't even allow Paul to continue saying anything else. He commands those who are standing next to Paul to strike him on his mouth. And Paul replies by calling him a whitewashed wall. In other words, Paul was pointing out the fact that he was doing something that was contrary to the law in striking him. Paul was saying to Ananias, the high priest, that he was a hypocrite. Now this phrase, whitewashed wall, should remind you of Jesus saying the same thing to the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs, referring to their hypocrisy, describing their condition as people who are dead inside, but painted looking beautiful on the outside. Paul knows that Ananias is not fit to uphold God's law, yet he sits as a judge of God's law. But notice when Paul learns that Ananias was actually the high priest, it seems like Paul did not know that before. He quotes Exodus chapter 22, 28, saying, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. In other words, Paul is saying he should not have done that. He didn't know that this was the high priest that he was speaking against. What this means is, according to God's word, God had set people in positions of authority and they were to be treated with respect, even though they might be hypocrites and people who are wicked. Do you see the contrast between Paul and Ananias in this story? Paul is unwilling to bend God's law to suit his own passions unlike Ananias, the high priest. And here we see Paul is continuing to live in good conscience before God, even when he is most vulnerable and weak. I think Paul is battling the urge to lash out because they are wrong. Paul's desire, even in this moment, even at a time of great adversity, is that he would be submissive to God's word in everything. He does not want to dishonor the name of Christ. And therefore, he does not lash out, even though they are wrong and he's vulnerable. Have you heard the saying, preach Christ, if necessary, use words? What it means is that let your Christian life be the only means by which you testify about Jesus. The saying is not accurate because we must proclaim the gospel with words. Unless we proclaim the gospel with words, people will not be able to hear it and they cannot come to believe it. We must explain the message of the gospel that Christ has died in the place of sinners to satisfy the wrath of God. And we must explain that he's risen from the dead, bringing life to those who believe. And it is when we proclaim those words that those who hear and believe are saved. However, if we only preach Christ, but if our life does not honor Christ, and if we live in a way that is contrary to what we preach, then our message is meaningless and empty. See, Paul is an excellent example of what it looks like to not only proclaim the gospel, but also to live in obedience to Jesus, even when it is extremely hard. And that meant for Paul, no matter what the cost, 
he would only seek to do what pleases the Lord. Paul taught this very clearly. Philippians 1.27, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. He didn't just teach that, he lived that out, as we see in this passage. Friends, the way we live our lives should represent the gospel that we preach. Our lives, if lived in obedience to Jesus, will give validity to the gospel we proclaim. Without that, we are really no different to the Jewish leaders who are trying Paul. We are hypocrites, and we hinder our witness of Jesus to others. Friends, some of you may find yourselves in situations that are very difficult for your faith. Maybe it is at your workplace or your homes. In all those situations, our chief desire should be that we must do what is according to scripture, even if it means that it will cost us much. What this means is that we should not respond to evil with evil. We are not to retaliate in a way that compromises the gospel. And we have no right to take up evil means to get justice in our lives, even when we have been sinned against, even when people have wronged us. We are called to submit to scripture at all times and entrust that the risen Jesus will right all wrongs, either on the judgment day, if not before. You know, sometimes it is not the big persecution that comes on account of the gospel that causes, that, uh, causes us to sin against God. Sometimes it's just the ordinary pressures of life that causes us to do that. I want you to ask yourself, how do you respond when you are under a lot of stress or pressure? Do you find yourself getting angry easily? dealing unjustly with others who are close to you? Do you find that you justify your sin by saying, I'm tired, I'm under a lot of pressure? I confess that when I'm tired or sick, I find myself getting angry very easily. But we must recognize that such behavior dishonors Christ. And we must ask for forgiveness from God, and we must ask for forgiveness from those we may have hurt. We must humble ourselves. And these little steps that we take will prepare us if God ever calls us to endure greater persecution in our lives. Paul did not sin before the Sanhedrin, but he wasn't silent either. He noted that the council that he was standing in the midst of was comprised of two parties. The Pharisees, and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were those who believed in the doctrine of resurrection. The Sadducees did not. In fact, they didn't even believe in the existence of angels or spirits. Now, when Paul saw the makeup of the council, he used a wise tactic to divide the Sanhedrin. It was a stroke of genius on Paul's part. So in verse 6, he claimed that he was a Pharisee and he was son of Pharisees. Then he goes on to say that it was with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that he was on trial. That's absolutely true. You see, the greatest objection that the Jewish leaders had against the Christians was that they were following the risen Jesus 
Jesus who they had killed. So Paul was on trial regarding matter of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. But he said it in such a way to cause division among the council. Paul employed great shrewdness and wisdom that was given to him by God when he was on trial. And his remark caused such an uproar in the council that some of the scribes of the Pharisees got up and declared that Paul was innocent. This confusion brought the trial to a standstill and the Roman tribune was forced to take control of the situation. But look at what the Roman tribune witnessed that day. He noted that the Pharisees were shouting at the Sadducees, legal experts arguing loudly, violently. And so in order to protect Paul, he orders that he be taken back to the barracks. You know, this is very important, what happened on this day. In God's sovereignty, this Roman tribune witnessed the hostility of the Jewish leaders, and that would prove extremely useful for Paul, as we will see in the next section. Now remember, all of this happened so that they could discern what were the charges that the Jews had against Paul. But it seems like the council did not make any progress in this matter. If anything... The verdict is, Paul is innocent. Jesus commanded his disciples in Matthew 10, 16, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, it's important that we think about how to respond wisely when we find ourselves facing persecution on account of the gospel. God may give us wisdom in those moments to avoid persecution. And we are free in Christ to use whatever resources that God has given us to not only see the gospel would go to the nations, but also to escape persecution. But we must do so without bringing dishonor to Christ or breaking any of God's law. I don't know if you saw this as you were reading this section, but there are many similarities between this trial and the trial of Christ before the Sanhedrin. Jesus too was hated by the Jews who sought to destroy him. He too was falsely accused, treated unlawfully by the high priest, just like Paul. He was completely innocent, but he was beaten and mocked. And even in Jesus' case, the accusers couldn't agree on what they were accusing him of. No, it's, no diff it's no accident that Paul's experience is so similar to Jesus's. Didn't Jesus predict this would happen? Jesus says in John chapter 13, 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus had taught that his disciples would experience persecution because of him. They would be shamefully treated. They would be hated just like they hated him. And now Paul gets to walk in Jesus' footsteps and experience the suffering that Jesus experienced. From the outside, this seems like a very sad situation. It seems like God's enemies have triumphed. It seems like God has abandoned Paul. It seems like his ministry is about to come to an end. But just as Jesus' suffering was the means by which salvation would be secured, the suffering of Paul 
would be the means by which the gospel would go far and wide, as we will see very soon. One thing you should know, God's enemies are not winning. Even though Paul is bound, even though he's at the mercy of these two powers, Jewish and Roman, we see that God is with him. We see that God is with him because God gives him wisdom to answer wisely in that trial so that he's saved from a full trial before the Sanhedrin. But more clearly, we see that Jesus is with him in verse 11. Jesus visits Paul in prison. Jesus tells him to take courage. He tells him that he has plans for him to go to Rome, to take the gospel to Rome. But notice there, there are no miraculous prison breaks here. There, there are no supernatural, there's no supernatural protection for Paul. All Paul gets is his presence and his promise. You know, the Christian life is one that mirrors the life of Jesus. We walk in the path that he walked, and that path is one of suffering for the sake of the gospel. We are not promised a comfortable life. In fact, if anything, we are promised the opposite. We should not think that it is our God-given right to be comfortable in this world. We must be prepared to give up our comfort if that is what is best for the gospel. The thing is, no matter what is taken away from us, Jesus promises that he will be with us and that he will never leave us. And that is the greatest comfort for Jesus' disciples. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, commissioned his disciples in Matthew 28, 26, he says, he will be with them till the end of the age. He will never leave his disciples to suffer alone. He will meet with them. He will be ever present with them. And that is their greatest comfort. And Paul says this later in 2 Corinthians 1.5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You know, in Paul's case, the encouragement was that there is a clear plan for where his imprisonment would lead him. He might have been fearful, confused as to what would happen next. His ministry seems to be coming to an end. His life seems to be coming to an end. And so also we should remember that when we suffer, it's less likely that Jesus is going to pay a personal visit to us in the midst of our suffering. But we have these stories recorded for us in the pages of scripture to know that Jesus is present with us no matter what we will go through for the sake of the gospel. So even though you might not hear the audible voice of Jesus when your co-workers laugh at you because of your faith or when your children despise you because you are teaching them about Christ, or when you lose your job or your friends or your reputation because you proclaim Christ, you should know that he is right there with you. Even in the pit of despair, Jesus is present and he's telling you, take courage. You know, to the world, this doesn't mean much. 
But to Christians, this comfort of Jesus' presence is a great mercy from God. It means that God of the universe is concerned about our suffering. He's not distant from us. And that knowledge is sufficient for Christians to endure suffering, no matter what that means for their lives. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, don't be discouraged in your evangelism. You might be meeting with a lot of opposition right now, but God is not done with you. Could it be that through the opposition, he's preparing you for more witness of the gospel? If you are alive, it means that God has a plan for you. As one author puts it, God's servants are immortal until their work is done. The promise is not that we will be kept safe, but the promise is that God will fulfill the plans for the gospel he has for our lives. So if you feel like your current evangelistic opportunities are going nowhere and all that you are meeting is just rejection, don't give up. The Lord will provide opportunities for you and ask him, pray that he will and see what he does. You know, a few months ago, a member in our church in Covenant Hope, whose name is Benji, was praying for opportunities to share the gospel with someone, but all he was seeing were closed doors. And then one day, a man walked into our church who didn't speak English very well, who's not from a Christian background, but he wanted to know about Jesus and he wanted to become a Christian. He was from Kerala, and Benji was one of the few people in our church who could speak his language and share the gospel clearly to him in a way that he could understand. I sat with them as they studied the scriptures together, and I was so encouraged to see that all of Benji's experience, his culture, his language, his upbringing, all of what God had done in Benji's life up till that point was to prepare him for that moment to meet this man to share the gospel with him. And I was encouraged to see how the Lord had answered Benji's prayers for opportunities to share the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Rack Church, let me encourage you, each one of you, to pray that the Lord will give you opportunities to share the gospel. The Lord delights to answer that prayer. Paul had to stand before the Sanhedrin council and that was the preparation that he needed to stand before the Roman authorities and proclaim the gospel there. God had a plan for Paul's life. God was not done with Paul. Paul will stand in three more trials. He will endure two years of imprisonment and he will have to take a deadly trip before he finally gets to Rome. One author says, God often gives us suffering to prepare us for more suffering. The road ahead in Paul's life is hard, but isn't it reassuring that it is not random, that it is not uncertain, that it is all part of God's sovereign plan? Well, let's see this more clearly in our second point, that God's plans for the world will always prevail. So let's read chapter 23, verse 12 to 35. 
when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for them, for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. <sighs> Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, Jesus has had appeared to Paul and promised that he would go to Rome. But there was no plan exactly as to how Paul is going to get to Rome. He's in prison after all. Moreover, the very next thing that happens, we are told, is that the Jews are plotting to kill Paul secretly. The chief priests and the, uh, the council are in on this plan too. According to their plan, they are going to lie and manipulate the Roman tribune to deliver Paul to them, and they are going to kill him. But their schemes amount to nothing because Paul's nephew hears about it and is able to communicate this plot to the Roman tribune who then ensures safe passage for Paul to Felix in Caesarea. Talk about 
coincidence. By the slimmest of chance, it's Paul's nephew, this young man, uh, who finds out about the secret plan of the Jews to kill Paul. How did he hear about that? On top of that, it so happens that the Roman centurion is so favorable to Paul that he wants to help him out. And on top of that, the Roman tribune actually believes the young man's report and takes every precaution to make sure that Paul is delivered safely to Caesarea. What are the odds? Turns out the odds are very high in Paul's favor because we know that from the earlier verses, God has no intention for Paul to die yet till his purpose has been fulfilled. Again, we see the unseen hand of God at work. Even in this passage, God controls people, situations, circumstances to do what is best, not just for Paul, but for the whole world. And what is best for the whole world? It is that the gospel would get to Rome, which at this point was the center of the world. You see, in God's sovereignty, what seems like an opposition to the gospel turned out to be an opportunity for the gospel. Did you notice the irony here? See, the plan of the Jews to kill Paul becomes the very means by which the gospel goes to Rome. If it were not for these people plotting to take Paul's life, what other reason would there be for Paul to leave Jerusalem? There would be no way for Paul to get out of Jerusalem and go to Felix, who is a higher official in the Roman government. In God's rule, he thwarted the plans of the enemies to stop the gospel from going out. You see, the Jews were opposed to the gospel going to the nations. But in God's sovereignty, they unknowingly become the means by which the gospel goes to the nations. You know, as we read the story, we are reminded of Psalm 2, verse 1 to 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Time and time again throughout Israel's history, nations that have set themselves against the Lord have only seen their plans be frustrated. It has never worked. If anyone should have known that it is pointless to plot against God, it should have been the Jews. Friends, it's tempting to envy the prosperity of the wicked. It's tempting to look at them as we see them getting what they want by lying, cheating, manipulating. And the world sometimes rewards this sort of behavior, whereas those who choose to follow Jesus, those who choose to be righteous, are the ones who are punished and ridiculed. It's tempting to join the wicked, to turn against God and his people. But we should know that God is not going to let them get away with their wicked ways. Even if they seem to be getting away right now, they will not get away on the judgment day. From a limited human perspective, it seems like the wicked are prospering while they stand in opposition to God. 
but we know from scriptures that God will frustrate their plans. In fact, he is using all actions for the purpose of his gospel, for his glory. I think someday when we are in heaven, we will be able to see more clearly how Jesus has turned the tables on the plans of all those who are opposed to him and used it for the good of the gospel. So if you feel particularly tempted right now in this way, I want to encourage you, stand firm in doing what is right. Be honest. Turn away from sin. Preach the gospel. Persevere in trusting Christ because in the end, he will be the one that wins. After Paul leaves Jerusalem here in the story, he's never going to return there again. He was preaching the gospel. The Jewish leaders should have known better. They had the scriptures. They should have repented and believed, but they were hard-hearted and proud. Paul's escape from the city is a picture of God's judgment on Jerusalem. But Paul really loved the Jews. Even after this, he did not wish to see them be judged. He was willing to pay a great price to see them saved. He says in Romans chapter 9 verse 3, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. But the Jewish leaders did not want to have anything to do with Paul. And that is because they didn't want to have anything to do with Christ. So God in his sovereignty takes Paul out of Jerusalem. And notice how he leaves Jerusalem. Paul leaves Jerusalem in style. Consider the extraordinary security detail that is assigned to Paul. 470 soldiers. Were, were 470 soldiers really necessary for the protection of just one man. Paul had the protection of a huge section of the Roman army to ensure that his passage would be safe to Felix. And at the end of the passage, where do we see Paul? He's protected by Felix in Herod's Praetorium. That was his palace, Herod's palace. Paul left Jerusalem more like a king than a criminal. Could anyone have planned this better than God? Paul, a prisoner of Christ, escorted by the great might of the Roman army to do what? To do an important job, to deliver the message of the gospel to the Roman officials. You can trace the fingerprint of God all over the events of this story. Now in verse 26 to 30, as you read the letter that the Roman tribune writes to Felix, we can't help but smile. You know what is the most repeated word in the letter that he writes? The most repeated word is I. It was all about the tribune. This man was full of himself. Now, to be clear, he was accurate in many things. He was the one who rescued Paul. He gave him special treatment. He was the one who presented him to the Sanhedrin. He's the one who learned about the challenge, uh, charges that were not validated. He was the one who foiled the Jewish plot to kill Paul. He's the one who sent him to Felix, and he's the one who ordered the accusers meet with Felix to present their case. But at the same time, you can't help but notice that the Roman tribune has manipulated the facts to present himself in a positive light. 
Notice that he does not mention anything about the order that he gives to flog Paul, which would have been a great offense and illegal to do. According to the Tribune, he gives all the credit for Paul's rescue to himself. But any careful reader of this passage will know that the real reason why the Tribune was able to do this was because Christ was at work all along. In the Tribune's mind, Paul's life was in his hands. But we know now that the Tribune's life was in the hands of the risen Jesus who was using him to take the gospel to high places. We see that God's sovereignty extends even to the lives of rulers, kings. No matter how rich or powerful or influential someone is, doesn't matter. Their lives are in God's control. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. See, the tribune has no idea that God was using him to accomplish his gospel purpose. Perhaps the only reason why he is in this position is to do this job. God is using the influence of this man to take the gospel to Rome. And so friends, even today, the resurrected Jesus is at work orchestrating the smallest details of our lives for his gospel purpose. Nothing happens in our lives by accident. So consider why you are really here. Why are you really in the United Arab Emirates? From a human perspective, you might say it is to find a job uh, or to study or to be with family. But how would you answer that question after reading this passage, seeing that the resurrected Jesus is sovereign? I want to say, you may be here so that you will hear the gospel and, be and believe in Jesus. You may be here so that you can be part of a healthy church and be established in your faith. You may be at the place that you are in right now. You're where you live or where you work, where you study, because Jesus wants to reach those who are near you right now with the gospel. Don't mistake the things that have happened in your lives to bring you to the point you are in right now. Don't write it off as coincidence or chance. God is behind every event that has brought you to the place that you are in right now. And praise God for that. Now I want to say, if you are here with us this morning, and you haven't repented and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, well then in light of this passage, I am so glad that you are here today. I want you to know that the Jesus we are reading about is not just a story in an ancient book that has no relevance to our lives right now. No, Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And that means that he is actually alive right now. And if you believe what we are reading this morning, it also means that Jesus is actually controlling every event, every circumstance in our lives so that we can hear the gospel. You may choose to think that you are in control of your lives. You may want, like the freedom that you think you have to reject Jesus but if there's anything you want to take away from this passage, it is this, that it is foolish 
to stand opposed to Jesus. That Jesus is powerful. I want you to see the fact that you are here today, right now, is because of God's mercy to you. It is an opportunity that he's giving you to repent and trust in Jesus who can forgive you of your sin. But I want to tell you there will come a time when Jesus will return on the judgment day when all those who haven't believed in Jesus will be judged for all of eternity. And all those who have believed will be saved. So don't miss this opportunity you have right now to turn to Jesus and be forgiven of your sins. You can turn to him today. He promises to use his power to save you. You know, oftentimes, we don't know why things happen in our lives. We know that Jesus is in control of everything, but he doesn't always tell us why things happen to us. But one thing we know that if we choose to follow Jesus, our lives may look like chaos, but God is in control. You know, it's tempting as we read the story to think that God is always going to use his power to deliver his people from suffering and death, just like he did with Paul in the story. But it's helpful to see this story in light of the one of Jesus. Let's compare the two. Both Paul and Jesus found themselves at the mercy of a Roman official. Paul had the Roman tribune. Jesus had Pontius Pilate. Both men knew that Jesus and Paul were innocent. Both men had the power to save them. Yet Pilate publicly washes his hands of Jesus and delivers him to death. And that is not because Pilate was more afraid than this Roman tribune. It was just that it was God's will. See, in Paul's case, preserving his life was the means by which the gospel would go forth. But in the case of Jesus, if he did not die, there would be no way for sinful men and women to be saved from the wrath of God. There would be no good news to share today. And he calls us to be like him. So you see that our safety and comfort is not the point. Our lives are to be spent to spread the gospel so that people will come to know him. And that might mean we might lose the very thing we think is keeping us safe right now. It might mean that we might lose our very lives for the sake of the gospel. I wonder how that idea that God is in control of your life makes you feel right now. Maybe it makes you feel out of control. Maybe it is upsetting to you to know that God is in complete control of your lives. But brothers and sisters, God wants us to know this so that we can be humble before him. And so that we can feel the privilege that we have that God would choose us, uh, choose to use us to accomplish his gospel purpose in the world. You know, in January 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed on a beach in Ecuador. They loved the Hurani people and wanted to take the gospel to them. They had been trying for months to make contact with them and they finally thought they had an openness to go and share the gospel with them. As soon as they arrived, 10 men ambushed them with spears and brutally slaughtered them. 
they never even had a chance to share the gospel with the Hurani people. A few years later, Jim's wife and daughter and many others returned to this tribe, shared the gospel with them, and they immediately saw many people come to know Christ. Many people who were part of the tribe repented of the murder of Jim and his friends, and they in turn shared the gospel with others in the tribe. And over time, the entire tribe was transformed by what God had done through the life and death of Jim Elliot and his friends. This episode in Paul's life should serve as an encouragement to us that God is in control. Even when we feel like life in our life, everything is in chaos and we are powerless. God has every moment, every situation, every person in the palm of his hands. And so we have nothing to fear. We can rest confident in knowing that God will accomplish his gospel purpose in the world. We can rest knowing that the enemies of Christ will never prevail. We can rest knowing that Jesus will have the final victory. The hymn writer William Cooper captures these beautiful truths in the hymn that he wrote in 1774. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds he so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word where you have revealed to us how powerful Jesus is and that he is accomplishing his gospel purposes in the world and through our lives. Father, we pray, Lord, that we will never forget what Jesus is doing through us. And we pray that even when we face discouragements and rejections and oppositions to the gospel, we will not give up, but we will know that Christ is still at work through us. We pray all this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.